Welcome. We are going to be continuing a series that we are in on 1 Corinthians, and so if you have your Bibles with you or your apps, wherever it is that you use to follow along, uh, you can go ahead and take that out and start opening to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you do not own a Bible, uh, that's okay. There are blue paperback Bibles in the seat in front of you, and uh, we would encourage you to take that out and to follow along, and that's actually our gift to you, and so please take that home with you and continue to read it. Uh, if the one in front of your seat is not in good condition, we have some out there in the lobby. Well, this morning we're going to be finishing up chapter 7 of our text, and the Apostle Paul is going to continue to apply the gospel and Christian teaching to the subjects of marriage and sex. And what he's actually going to start to do, though, is focus a little bit more and, get, and focus in on the areas of the marriage relationship or perhaps for those who are unmarried or yet not married. And so as we start to think about this, the marriage relationship or our life as a maybe unmarried person, uh, it's important for us to understand uh, what our culture says about these subjects, because what our culture says about these subjects is going to have a huge impact on how we just think about these subjects sort of internally. And that's because the marriage relationship or our life as an unmarried person really gets close to the core of our human identities and what we think of when we think about ourselves. And so such closely held identity values are inevitably going to be influenced in all kinds of ways by all kinds of messages, and it's important for us to understand sort of where we are in our cultural moment. Consider for the fact that that for a large portion of church history, for almost a thousand years during the monastic period and the height of the Roman Catholic Church, being single and celibate in service to the church was the it thing. Like, that was it. If you wanted to really serve God, if you really wanted to serve the church, you better be single so you can be a priest or a nun in service to the church. And while the Roman Catholic Church doesn't quite emphasize that message to the same extent today by demanding that its priests and its nuns and its church leaders be single and celibate, certainly still sends a message. Marriage is good, just not as good as remaining single so you can really serve God. Later in history, thanks to several moments like the Enlightenment and the Reformation and others, the value and dignity of marriage sort of quickly became reclaimed, but then the pendulum sort of swung to the other side, didn't it? And so for much of modern Western history, particularly in the 20th century, both the church and the culture idolized marriage to the point that it became very, very odd and difficult to live your life as a single person especially as a celibate single person. And now in the last decade or so, we have entered into a sort of a new season in our cultural moment where, again, the church and the culture are viewing these things very differently, but now things have sort of switched because rather than the church idolizing singleness and the culture valuing marriage, it is now the culture which idolizes being single and the church which most of the time unintentionally creates an idol out of marriage. As recently as the year 2000, married 25 to 34-year-olds outnumbered their never-married peers by a margin of 55 to 34 percent, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. 
But by 2015, the most recent year for which this data is available, those estimates have basically switched. Now it is the never-marrieds outnumbering their married peers by 53 to 40%. And so young Americans are quickly becoming wary and even skeptical of the idea of marriage. And there's several reasons you could maybe attribute it to this. Some say it's because wages are too low, and if wages were just higher, there would be more confidence for people to get married. Others say that there's a fear of commitment in millennials because they've seen so many of their parents get divorced and seen their families torn apart. Still others say it's because sex comes so cheaply and you don't need commitment to get sex, so why, get, so why marry? Why even bother? The reasons go on and on. But I think what it comes down to is really what our culture values the most the self, and our own autonomy. Michael Sandel of Harvard says that the prevailing idea of the individual today is the unencumbered self, by which he means no strings attached. I want the freedom to make my own decisions when I want to do it, where I want to do it, and I don't want anyone to tell me otherwise. We have become not much unlike the wooden puppet Pinocchio, who once famously sang... I've got no strings, so I have fun. I'm not tied up to anyone. They've got strings, but you can see there are no strings on me. And yet within the church, again, we can swing to the opposite extreme, can't we? It can be very difficult to live your life as an unmarried person in the church, whether that's as a widow, someone who has been divorced, or someone who has never married. For starters, people are always trying to set you up with someone, right? Everyone's always trying to get you set up. I remember trying to set my friend up one time, and he had this kind of meltdown. He just said, if one more person tries to set me up, I'm going to freak. And I was like, okay, I think you already are, man. Like, I just, I just want your good, man. I'm sorry, you know. But on top of that, a church's ministries and outreach often target who? Married couples, parents. We have classes on being married and parenting, but when was the last time you saw a church have a class on dating and meeting someone? As someone who didn't grow up in the purity culture, what I often hear sort of people say about their time growing up in in sort of purity culture was that the goal that they were given was to wait for marriage, not to be faithful to Jesus. And so marriage was the goal rather than faithfulness to Christ. And so It can be very difficult in the church to be single and unmarried. And so in our text this morning, what we're going to see the Apostle Paul doing is he's going to affirm both the value of the married and the single life because what matters most is not whether we are married or single, but whether we are satisfied with Jesus. Whether we are satisfied with Jesus and living for him. And so keeping all of this in the back of our minds and sort of our cultural moment, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our text this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. 
Are you free from a wife? Do not seek to marry. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Let's pray together. Father, we trust your word, and uh, we trust that when it challenges our preconceived notions of what we value and what we identify most uh, with, Lord, we trust that your word is, is right and, and we need to sit under your word and be conformed to what you have to say for our lives and be conformed to Christ. And so be with us now and speak to us by your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So three things I want us to quickly see in our text this morning. First is what I'm calling the satisfied principle. The satisfied principle. And then next, after that, we will apply it to being satisfied and unmarried and then satisfied and married. And so first, the satisfied principle, and I'm looking at verses 25 to 31 here. The Apostle Paul is calling us to be satisfied with the lives that we have now, not by looking to the next thing, not by looking to the next job, the next career, our spouse, or the hope for a spouse, but by looking to Jesus for our total and complete satisfaction. And if you understand what Paul is calling us to here, you will understand not only the secret to most of chapter 7, but really the secret to the whole Christian life. Verse 26 says that in light of the present distress, it is best for persons to remain as they are. What is this present distress that Paul is speaking of? Well, I have good clarifying news for you. We don't know. (laughs) We really don't know. Some say it's the expected persecution of Christians and the sufferings of this life. Others say that there was a famine at this time in Corinth. 
But whatever the present distress was, Paul is using the present sufferings of this age to point to a broader principle for the whole Christian life. Because the reality is, in this present age, the world is full of distress. The world is full of distress. Last night, some of us in the church, we went to an event called Walk with Refugees. And the focus of this event was learning ways in which the church can and should be supporting refugees in our local area. We heard from one woman named Rose, who is a refugee survivor from the Congo and has now become an activist for churches to get involved with refugees. She has known much present distress in this life. She told her story about how she had lost her husband, many of her family members, and even some of her children at the hands of the government, killed before her eyes. She said that everything was taken from her in a split second. And yet, because she had Jesus, she knew that nothing could really be taken from her. She knew that even if she died, she would not die a second time because she would be with her Savior. And that was enough for her. She knew she had been washed by the blood of Jesus. And that was enough for her. And so Paul says, it is best for you to be satisfied where you are and with what you have. Because absolutely nothing is promised to us. Nothing is promised to us in this life. And you see, although Paul is going to start applying this principle more specifically to being married or unmarried, it's much bigger than that. It's much bigger than that. It gets really, it gets down to the fabric of what it means to be a Christian. You see the call that the scripture has for us this morning. The appointed time of this world has grown very short. It's grown very short. Some of us know this more than others. The present form of this world is passing away. Time has a direction and a purpose, and the purpose is not to be found in this life, but in the renewal of all things and in the life that is to come. Time's direction is headed towards the return of King Jesus when all that we know will fade away and everything will be made new. And that should inform how we live our lives now. In a sermon on this text, the Puritan Richard Sibbs, living during the 16th century, he said that in these verses, the Apostle Paul is calling us to the main. Calling us to the main. And I imagine he sounded like Sean Connery when he said that. I'm not really sure why. Um, Calling us to the main. And what he meant by that is that Paul is calling us to the big idea of the Christian life. Our time is short. Christ is coming soon. The world is passing away. And if you really understand that, then you will not be weighed down by the things of this world. You will not be consumed by the things of this world, but you will be free to know how to redeem your time and live accordingly all things for God's glory. And so this is why the Apostle Paul is able to say that whether you marry or you remain single. It's no sin, right? The marriage relationship or being single is not a matter of sin. 
What matters is how you use your time and live your life. What matters is how you live your life as a married or an unmarried person. There is liberty, Paul said. And he goes on. There's liberty in marriage. There's liberty in mourning. There's liberty in rejoicing. There's liberty as being able to buy. And there's liberty in dealing with the world. But there is always a danger. There is always a danger that we become consumed by the things of this world and we make them our main. We make them the main thing, the big idea. We are so desperately set on the things of this world that we need to be called back to the main. And I think part of the Christian life is becoming attentive to when God is calling us back to himself and showing us where we've turned to other things for our satisfaction and our joy. Is Jesus enough for us? Is Jesus enough for us? Are we fully satisfied in him? I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we are all tempted by our comfortable American lives in ways that we may not always be aware of. Aren't we so quick to turn to anyone or anything else for our satisfaction other than Jesus. Be that the spouse, or the hope for a spouse, or a new job, or a career, or the car, or the new clothing line, or whatever it is. And it's so easy for us to put our eyes on these things for our satisfaction, our hope in the next thing, rather than being satisfied in Jesus. But brothers and sisters, the appointed time has grown short. Nothing is promised to us. And only Jesus can satisfy. And so now Paul goes on to apply this more specifically to being unmarried or married in this life. And so this next point I have is being satisfied and unmarried. Being satisfied and unmarried. Charlie touched on verse 7 last week where the Apostle Paul says that he wishes all would remain as he is but each has their own gift from God. Verse 7 has led to what many people in the church sometimes call the gift of singleness or the gift of celibacy. And sometimes I put it in sort of the scare quotes like that because I think we make this gift more mystical than other gifts. We sort of differentiate it from the other gifts and we sort of turn it into like the golden unicorn of spiritual gifts. Here's what I mean. I think when a lot of people start talking about the gift of singleness or the gift of celibacy, what they have in mind is a complete lack of desire for marriage. Sort of this emotional detachment, a stoic uh, detachment from any desire to be married whatsoever. But here's the problem with that. You're not going to find such teachings of emotional detachment anywhere in Scripture. You're not going to find that kind of emotional detachment as a teaching anywhere in Scripture. When Paul uses this word gift to refer to a spiritual gift, what he's talking about is a supernatural, God-given ability to serve and to build others up. To serve and to build others up. And so Paul is not speaking of a stoic, emotional, free state. He's talking about a supernatural, God-given ability to serve others and to serve the church 
through a life of being unmarried or a season of being single. He's speaking of persons who are able to be satisfied with Jesus or who are learning to be satisfied with Jesus in this life now so that they can use their time and their abilities for the good of others. And in my experience, for the large majority of men and women who God has called to be single, either for a season or maybe for their whole lives, there is emotional struggle. There is. There's a desire to be married. There's a desire for family. There's a desire for kids. And remember, there is freedom to mourn. And there is freedom to grieve. Paul said so. He says as much in this text. So long as we know how to keep the main thing the main thing. In Neva and I's time in the church, we have come to know far more um, single Christian women than men. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that, and that's not the purpose of this sermon, so I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail. But um, we know many wonderful Christian women who, although they long for marriage and they long for children, they have learned and they are learning to be satisfied in Jesus and in the present call that he has for their lives. I could think of many examples, but right now I think of just one dear sister to us who has a longing and a desire for kids. And I, and I know that because I've comforted her while she's tearfully told me, I want kids. And yet, she has become a tremendous example to us, to the church, to her church, of what it means to serve the body with her time and with her life. And I know if you were to ask her now, she would say she has many kids and she has a large family because she is so involved in the lives of the families of her church and really helping to raise the kids in her church. That for her, it's her family and they're her kids. I think sometimes in the church, married couples can... um, have this idea that single persons really don't have much to contribute to our lives, like uh, they, they don't know our situation, they don't know our life stage, and so there's not much counsel or, or help that can be provided. And it's just not true. It's just not true. The reality is single and unmarried persons need married couples just as much as married couples need single and unmarried persons. And so the call of the church and the task for our church is to create a community where unmarried and married persons are living in such a way that we could say we are family. And we live as if we are one family, regardless of the marriage relationship that's involved. I remember my first year when I was going to a church and I was attending a Bible study with men. And after several weeks, they asked me to stop attending because I couldn't relate to their life stage. They said it would be better for me to go meet with single men because I had nothing to contribute to their lives. You see, this is what the Apostle Paul is getting at in verses 32 to 35. The married man or woman has particular troubles and anxieties about the things of this world because their time and their attention is devoted to their marriage. But Paul is saying for the unmarried person, there is liberty and there is freedom to use more of your time in service to the church. And of course, 
being single comes with its own unique anxieties and troubles as well. I have a note in my Bible uh, on this verse here that says, uh, I think it's verse 28, those who marry will have worldly troubles. I don't know when I made this note. It must have been a couple years ago. It's just highlighted, and in the margins, it's the word true. (laughs) It's in capital letters. (laughs) Sorry, honey. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what was going on at the time when I wrote that, Um, but it's true, (laughs) and Paul's call for all of our lives, married or unmarried, is to use our time and devotion to him. This is a teaching that makes the Bible very unique from other philosophies, other religions, and really the rest of the world. Because again, what matters most is not being married or single, but who and what you are living for. Both the unmarried and married lives are verified by Jesus and Paul as a valuable way of life, both equally important, both equally valuable. And we see this not only in their teaching, but also in their way of life. Paul, like Jesus, like John the Baptist, like several of the prophets, lived a single and unmarried life satisfied in God. The pastor Samuel Rutherford, writing to one of his, the members of his church in the 17th century, who for all we know, she never married, He said this to her, and I I think this is a sweet word of encouragement, really to all of us, but in particular to those of you who in this room who are maybe have a longing for marriage and are striving to be satisfied in Jesus. Samuel Rutherford said this to his the member of his church. He said, Follow on after his love. Tire not of Christ, but come in and see his beauty and excellency and feed your soul upon Christ's sweetness. This world is not yours, neither would I have your heaven made of such mire and clay. You have the choice of all lovers in heaven or out of heaven when you have Christ, the only delight of God the Father. And so climb up the mountain with joy and faint not. Our best things here have a worm in them. How true. Our best things here have a worm in them. Our joys besides God are but woes and sorrows. Christ is that which our love and desires can sleep sweetly and rest safely upon. Brothers and sisters, strive to be satisfied in Jesus and to live a life content and for his glory. Now, a brief word to those who are married in the church, being satisfied and married. It's important for us to keep the entire teaching of the Bible in view here when we look at this passage, because if we only had 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we may be led to think of a very uh, depressing outlook on marriage. Very depressing outlook on marriage. But let's not forget the rest of the teaching of the Bible on the dignity and the value of marriage. Paul says in Ephesians 5 that marriages are to be a picture of the Christ-church relationship to the world, which is a high calling, a noble calling, a valuable calling for our marriages. Marriage was given to men and women in the creation before the fall which means that marriage is a very, very good gift from God. But just as there is a freedom and a danger to all things, 
There are special freedoms and special dangers to our marriages, which Paul addresses here. He says repeatedly that those who marry do not sin. The marriage itself is not the sin issue. The danger lies when we are going to our marriage or our spouse for our ultimate satisfaction or our hope. This is where the troubles and the anxieties abound. The most serious danger for marriages is for those who are looking to their spouse or the hope for a future spouse for all of their satisfaction, for all of their affirmation, for all of their joy. Just an example of this. I know for many men in particular for whom they have thought that their pornography and their lust issues would be solved by their marriage. And so they were relying on their future wife or their current wife to solve their sin issue. But I think those of us who are married know that marriage has a way of taking the sins that we bring into the marriage and making them exponentially worse, doesn't it? Marriage has a way of taking our sins and making them exponentially worse. For those who bring pornography into their marriage, not only will they not be able to stop watching porn, but they will alienate and hurt their spouse and crush their spouse underneath all kinds of false expectations for sex and what sex should be. For those who look to their spouse or their future spouse for their affirmation, their identity, and their value, they will again crush their spouse underneath their expectations. Your spouse is unable to carry the burden of all of your hope for all of your satisfaction, for all of your affirmation. And if you are looking to your spouse for everything, for all of your satisfaction and joy, you will crush them. You will crush them. And troubles and all kinds of anxieties are sure to follow. Here's an easy test to know if you are crushing your spouse under expectations that are too exceedingly great for them. When they let you down, how does that make you feel? How does that make you feel? Do you get so angry that you feel as if you must punish them, that you must lash out at them for letting you down, for not meeting your expectation? Do you get so incredibly disappointed that you give them the cold shoulder or hold a grudge? against them. Perhaps your spouse does need to change. Perhaps your spouse does need to mature. But so long as you crush them under the weight of your satisfaction and expectations for satisfaction, trouble is sure to follow you. See, our marriages and our spouses were designed by God to lead us to him. Our spouses are here simply as pointers to help us learn to be more satisfied in Jesus. So look not to your spouse for ultimate satisfaction, but to Jesus, who alone can satisfy us. In John chapter 6, Jesus has an encounter with a crowd that is turning to him because they had just been fed, their bellies had been filled by one of the miraculous feedings of the fish and the loaves. And so they come to him because they want more food. (laughs) They want to continue to be fed. But the point of Jesus' miracle was not just to simply feed and meet their physical need. 
It was to point to a much deeper spiritual truth about him and the reason for which he was sent into the world. And so in John chapter 6, the people come to him and Jesus responded to them by saying this in verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In a moment, we're going to be coming to the Lord's Supper together to take and eat of this meal that has been prepared for us. The invitation is open wide to all those who are endeavoring and striving to follow after Jesus and to be satisfied in him. And so if you're here this morning and you are longing for Jesus and you have committed yourself to Jesus to follow after him and be satisfied in him, come and eat and have your fill of Jesus this morning. The world is passing away. But one thing we can be sure will remain is this meal. This meal will remain because one day we will eat and forever be satisfied at the banquet that Jesus is preparing for us. But if you have not committed your life to Christ and you have not turned to him for your hope and satisfaction, we would ask you not to partake of the bread and the juice as they come around to you. And this isn't because we're trying to be exclusive in any way, but it's simply because without the hope of Jesus, without the satisfaction of Jesus, this bread and juice doesn't mean anything. It's just a cracker and a little cup of juice. Instead, I would ask you to think on the things that you have heard about this morning. Consider, perhaps, what you have turned to for your hope and your satisfaction in this life. And if you find yourself wanting, maybe with bitter taste in your mouth toward the things of this world, maybe a besetting cynicism is creeping up on you, may I suggest that is because you are not made to be satisfied by the things of this world. You are made to be satisfied by someone who is not of this world. You were made to be satisfied in Jesus. And so turn to him. Ask for forgiveness of your sin, for looking to other things, for your hope and your satisfaction. Ask him to satisfy you and to receive him in fullness. The appointed time has grown very short. The invitation does not stand forever. Use the time that has been given to you to turn to him. 
And if you have any questions about what that looks like for your life, please come find me. Any of the men who you'll see up here serving the supper will be down front after the service or out in the lobby. Please come find us. We would love to talk with you about what that means for your life. I'm going to close this in prayer now, and then we will stand to sing a song of response, and then we will all come to take of the supper together. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we trust that you are the only one who can satisfy us. Lord, I pray for those in this room who are unmarried, maybe not yet married, never married, divorced, widowed, Perhaps, Lord, there are those who have resolved and who are fully content in the call that you have their lives. And Lord, we celebrate that, that you are satisfying them. But Lord, we also know that there are many in this room who have longings and desires and emotions. And Lord, we ask that you would meet them and satisfy them too. And lead them to know how to make the best use of their time, just as we ask for those of us who are married, Lord. Help us not to idolize our marriage or to find our hope and our satisfaction ultimately in our marriage, but to be satisfied in you and to redeem our time and to redeem our service for your glory and for your namesake. Hear us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.